Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Most of the stuff I've done previous in my career, Mr. Show, Between Two Ferns, the podcast, has been always for people who are, say, 15 or 16 and above. And the Comedy Bang Bang TV show has fans that are two years old. Parents are constantly sending me videos of their kids watching it. And it was very surprising to me to learn that if you just add kind of a sense of like fun and, and friendliness to the show, that children are really interested in watching that. Dear listener, feel most welcome to the 12th episode of Varvet International with me, Christopher Triumph. And the guest to make that first dozen programs complete is talk show host and comedian Scott Ackerman. But before I present him any further, I want to tell you that this show is sponsored by the Swedish raincoat company Stutterheim. And Stutterheim has gained a great reputation among quality and style lovers around the world. And even though their fabulous coats are available in some 300 stores around 25 countries, if you are too far from one of those, you can find all their awesome coats online at stutterheim.com. And shipping is free. Did I tell you about that? Yes, I did perhaps in an earlier episode. But it's time again. Shipping is free. And uh, there's a no-hassle return policy and so forth. You should check it out. Stutterheim.com. Thank you, Stutterheim.com. This episode's guest is a legend from Super Funny Comedy Bang Bang, which is a podcast and a TV series these days. And Mr. Scott Aukerman is also one of the creators and producers for Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis, for which Scott won an Emmy earlier this year in the category Outstanding Short Format Live Action Entertainment Program. Well, that's a catchy title for a category. Anyways, congratulations. And listener, if you've missed this brilliant little show, please head over to funnyordie.com ASAP and see, for instance, the instant classic interview with President Obama. But Scott Aukerman has a long career. Already in the mid-90s, he wrote for the HBO cult series Mr. Show with a bunch of other comedians who would rule American humor for the decades to come. And speaking of comedy, he also ran a very influential comedy club in LA for more than 10 years. We'll soon get to all of this. And since five years, Scott also hosts a podcast called Comedy Bang Bang, formerly known as Comedy Death Ray. And if I have to mention two American podcasts that have inspired me the most and uh, did 
most early on. It's uh, WTF with Mark Maron and Comedy Bang Bang, or CBB as us fans say. We'll get more into Scott's life and background in just a few minutes, but I want to tell you that this interview is one of the first I did. It's uh, a little bit old, but timeless, and it's probably the most political interview that any of us have done to date, I would assume, anyway. And I think you'll enjoy it. So, time to roll the tape with Mr. Scott Aukerman. It's uh, recorded in the legendary Earwolf Studios in West Hollywood, Los Angeles. Okay, let's go. So now we're here. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much. It's nice to meet you. It looks like you have been perhaps working out this morning. Working out? No. Uh, I Did you Because of my shower? bag. I did take a shower, but I, I do have my workout bag with me okay. for later. But it's more of a go bag, meaning um, if anything happens, if, if shit goes down, I just grab my bag. I'm ready to flee the country at any time. Okay, that's good. Mm-hmm. Do you work out? I have been lately, yes, because we, we start filming the show in a week. And you have to be so, fit for that. Well, it's always an arduous process. To be honest, the very first thought that I had when... I got the call that we were doing season three of the TV show was a deep depression sank over me because I realized that I would once again have to go through the diet and lose the weight again because pretty much the the process has been for the first season, I lost 30 pounds to do it. So I found out I was doing the show and I had been pretty much slightly overweight, not like horrible. And most people who who knew me were like, you don't need to lose weight. But I knew being on camera is very tough and makes you just look bloated. So how how many pounds does the camera add? 30. So that's 13.6 kilograms. Mm. You lost 13 kilos? Yes. Okay. So the camera adds 10 pounds, which would be a Three divided by 13, about four kilos. Yeah. The camera adds (laughs) four kilos or so. So I figured out that I was doing the show and that they were going to take a chance on me. And they actually, I did not the pilot of Bang Bang, but I did a pilot for the network of an interview show that I was doing so they could see what I was like on camera. And I did, the pilot came about so suddenly I didn't have an opportunity to lose the weight. Mm. So I did it right away. And then when it got ordered, I realized I was going to be on camera a lot, so I lost 30 pounds or 13 kilos. How? I did it all through Weight Watchers, which is okay. a United States, yeah. or I don't know if it's worldwide. We, we have that. Okay, so I, I did it without exercise. I did it all through diet. Okay. I guess my diet had been so terrible mm. that just adjusting that let me drop a, a lot of weight pretty quickly. So I think within three months, I'd lost all that weight, which was the time in between filming the pilot and then doing the show. So by the time I started doing the show, I had lost a lot of weight. And then when the first season of Comedy Bang Bang came around, I lost a little more. So I was at a good level where like I I felt comfortable on camera. And then I've been going through this process of the season will end and I gain a lot of it back. Not all of it because I I started at such a high level, but I, I, I would gain about a third or half of it back like within the next six months while I was waiting to hear if we got picked back up. Mm. 
because while while I'm doing this season, it it's basically like I'm starving myself, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's like I'm eating just the lowest fat content a day and not eating very much. So I I kind of went back up after season one, and then we heard about season two, and I went back down. I started doing the Weight Watchers and denying myself everything, and I went back down, did season two, and then season three. By the time I got picked up, I believe I'd been out of doing the show. I think they picked us up in August. I'd stopped doing the show in May, so I'd had May, June, July, August. So I'd had four months, and I'd I'd based, you know, I'd been to Austin eating barbecue, and I'd I'd you know just all this stuff where I was like, hey, I'm off doing the show, and then I heard we got picked up, and and that was my first thought was depression of. Yeah. Of wow, I have to lose all the weight again. So, anyway, it's been harder this year. I think the older I get, the harder it gets to do it. So this year, I added um, over the last month, I've been uh, working out a lot to try to just drop as much as I can before we start filming. For some reason, that has been the hardest part about doing the show. Not the long hours, not the creative, all of the the ideas that have to go into the show. It for me, it's just been like the that's been the drag about doing the show is and I I, I I am certainly not on the scale of this, but when you hear about people like Hugh Jackman doing the Wolverine movie where they have to eat just egg whites all day or a skinless chicken breast and they have to work out six times a day, that's how I feel being be I'm on the comedian parallel of that. Yeah. Which is I have to work out for an hour a day and, you know, only eat baked chips, you know. <laughs> But that's my. Uh, I actually tweeted that like three weeks ago. Uh, my my number one wish is that someone would call me and say the good news is that you I, I have a role for you. Mm-hmm. The bad news is that you have to lose well thirty pounds. That's what you know. That's what uh, that line from the Golden Globes the other day, where Matthew McConaughey lost thirty pounds to be in Dallas Buyers Club, and as Tina Fey said. For actresses, that's called being in a movie. And that's that's exactly what it is because, you know, being married to an actress, it's very hard for women to stay down to that level of weight that – is uh, acceptable, quote unquote, on TV. I was I was doing sort of an experiment the other day, and I was I was watching TV, and anything on the program that I was watching, and anything in the commercials. If I ever saw a woman, I sort of did a a mental count of how many were skinny to how many were not. And it was like 95% were like just rail thin. Mm. That's, you know, the tough part about being an actress because you gain, you know, it's harder to lose weight for for women. And yet most of the women on TV are are like as thin as models. Whereas with men, if you look at Law & Order, it's like, the women on that show are beautiful models, and the men are like punchy character actors. <laughs> you but this know? is this is a really like feminist observation of you. Are you a feminist? I, I wouldn't. I, I mean, I don't think that I'm a feminist in the in the traditional sense of. I think feminists would scoff at some of the things I say. I, I'm a comedian who traffics in sometimes stereotypes. So, yeah. but but you know, I am married to a wonderful woman, and I I think about things like this. Yeah. So. You know, that, but I, I do believe that they should earn, you know, 77 cents on the dollar. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was a question uh, I had because I talked to um, Larry Charles the other day. Oh, OK. And, great. Uh, and I was uh, fascinated because when I asked that question, he said, 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I didn't think that men could be feminists in the U.S. almost. Or I think you can. I, 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 in, in my mind, to be a true feminist, I think one would have had to have studied feminist theories in college and stuff like that and really have been able to wrap their brains around some of the deeper thoughts behind it. I have, you know, I barely went to school, so I have never taken any, any time. I mean, I certainly think about things like this. And, and when you're in show business, especially when you're hiring people like I do, a lot of these issues come up and you, you, you know, you try to work out exactly why, you know, I got, I got blasted by a website recently, not me personally, but the show, the TV show for in the first season, not having any female writers on the staff. And we were listed. They basically, this website does a public shaming where they, they find every single TV show that does not have a female writer and they, they post it in a big list so they can be shamed into hiring women. And this is, this is my complicated take on the subject is I think that it actually is a good thing. I think public shaming is kind of a good thing and it affects change. And I started to notice in the 90s the kind of change that was happening on TV in terms of casting – in terms of uh, uh, multi-ethnic casting that I think was really great, uh, especially on at, at networks like NBC, which I know were doing diversity showcases and the like, you would see a lot of their shows like ER and there would be a, it really reflected the world. Whereas I think they were trying to change the perception of, of stuff like Friends, which, you know, is six white people. I think that was maybe one of the very last kind of six white people shows and they got ridiculed for it a little bit. So I think they started doing these diversity showcases. Mm-hmm. And and I really saw the change that that kind of enacted, that sort of public shaming. So I think it's a good thing. As far as when it was directed at me, I my, my feelings on the subject and why I got a little uh, prickly or offended by it is I kind of feel like a sketch show is a very difficult thing to publicly shame like that because – the good sketch shows are not – the writers are not a hodgepodge of people that you're out there like taking submissions from and trying to fill quotas. The good sketch shows are ones that are written by a tight-knit group of people who have worked together for a really long time. And so the people on my show were people with whom I've I've worked for a very long time and we only had four or five people on the staff – and we were just people who had worked together for a long time. Mm. And so it's almost uh, – I had likened it to almost saying like, hey, men, you have to get more diversity in your best friends. <laughs> you know, yeah. like these people who, who were working on my show had worked together for a long time and were best friends. Mm. It's very hard to say, hey, get some more women in your best friends, you know, because men don't have a lot of, you know, best friends that are women. It just, just doesn't really happen like that. And a lot of sketch and comedy is written by people who have grown up together and who are best friends. So that's why you see things like, you know, workaholics or the birthday boys, you know, these people who have lived together in houses all their lives and you know so yes once we got a few more writers on season two we did have one woman on the staff and that was because she was also in that close-knit group but it's just it's a harder thing in comedy I, I feel like in a way you know but I do see the good in it so in Sweden we have had 
Over the last maybe one or two years, we have had a big discussion on how much of the attention or uh, just uh, behind the camera as well, how many women and how many men are on television Mm -hmm. and how many are working with the creative part and so on. Traditionally, the creatives tend to be men and the people like the moms mm-hmm. of the staff tend to be women. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because even when you're writing and I'm you know writing a sketch show, I've had these conversations with other comedians. There are certain tropes in comedy. You kind of work off of these tropes. For instance, one is a policeman shows up and is about to bust you. Okay, and your first mind as a writer goes to, okay, who is going to play that male cop? And we have done on the show and and a lot of times, you know, growing up the way you grow up, it's also male white Irish cop. Okay, so we've taken a big step on the show to try to say each time we're casting one of these roles, why does it have to be a white male? Why can't the copy a woman? Woman can certainly be intimidating when she comes in with a gun. And But I've talked about it with other comedians, and there are sometimes in comedy like certain stereotypes that you are playing off of to make that joke. So it's difficult. It becomes difficult because there was a part on the show last year. We did a, a, a sketch called Cop Swap where Reggie Watts switched places with a cop and his partner, Reggie, ends up shooting his partner in the head. Because he goes bad and, and um, you know, becomes a dirty cop. And for a little bit, I was advocating that we should have his partner be a female because it's like an awesome part for a woman to do to, to like – it was a cool part. It was She would have gotten to be a cop and um, gotten like makeup, a bullet hole in the head and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, that would be cool if it was a woman. And we really wrestled with it and at the end end of the decision process, and I don't even know if we're right or we're wrong, we said, this is such a harsh sketch already and sort of atypical. We don't have a lot of like bullet holes in the heads on our show. We were kind of like, it's such a difficult pill to swallow for an audience in this lighthearted show already. Do we really want to add a level of, oh, also this woman is being shot? Mm -hmm. I don't know if we're right or wrong, because I think a lot of true feminists would say, well, yeah, why shouldn't it be a woman who gets shot? But we just didn't want to add that level for to, to make the audience have to deal with that on top of something that is already difficult for them to swallow. So I don't know. These are the kind of things that we definitely think about in the show. But I think a true a true feminist would be a little more hardline about it. I think in the in the in the in the term that it's sort of used here in the United States when you say you're a feminist, I kind mm. of see people being a little more strident about it. Yeah. But you know, I hear I hear uh statistics like the other day I heard that um I think it was something like 27% of the films written this year were written by women. To that I say ladies get to work. Write a few more films. Mm-hmm. No, that's a joke. Yeah. We've had the same problem in Sweden. Well, the government has money and they hand it out to people making films. And, and we've had like maybe 90% of, or so of the, that money have been given to men. And a lot of people in the country, I'm sure, would say, hey, you're the government. You're It's 50-50. Exactly. Why wouldn't you represent all of the people? Yeah. 
then perhaps someone would say, but these scripts that the ladies came in with aren't as good. But this is the age-old question of you have to give people opportunity so they can rise to it. Exactly. Because how how is anyone supposed to ever get good at the craft unless they get opportunities? So, I mean, it's the, it's the age-old question, and it's, it's, you know, something that I don't know if people would be surprised to even know that we deal with on a stupid comedy show. Mm. But I am proud of, you know, our second season, if you look at the show, I feel like we did a lot of subtle work on trying to make the people who appear on camera very diverse, and I think we did a lot of work kind of giving some of those stereotypically male roles to women. So, you know, and and the work continues, and I'm not saying that we are as good at it as like a show like ER was. I don't know why I keep bringing up that, but to me that was like a really good example of a cast that that had very complex storylines for women and where it seemed half the cast was white and half the cast was very diverse. Mm. You know, I mean, it, these are the types of things as a TV creator that you're trying to make sure that these opportunities arise. As a person who hires writers, we are not a network show like an NBC Parks and Recreation that has a ton of money to throw at writers. You know, some TV shows, I think, have... 12, 15 people on staff, we have six. So we have to do our hiring. We have to be very choosy about it. And um, we can't just hire anybody. And so and, and they have to have a very specific sense of humor. So it's a little more difficult. But at the same time, you want to give opportunities to people. But at, at the other end of the spectrum, you have to hire the people that are really good. So it's it's a very delicate balancing act. I'm not that je ne sais quoi that uh, you know when when it comes to humor what's mm-hmm. what's actually is a show and what isn't. Hmm. But could you describe what is your humor for instance for the TV show? For the TV show, yeah. I, what's interesting to me is I think I've I've done a lot of different styles of humor over the years in my work. Mr. Show, I think when I started working on that was a very kind of smart humor mixed with dumb humor mixed with offensive humor on Mr. Show. I feel like we were intentionally with most sketches trying to do something that could be considered offensive because we were on HBO and that was sort of the, the show and people got such joy out of hearing People say things like motherfucker on TV. I mean, you would get a laugh just saying motherfucker uh, and putting that into a line because it's it's the freedom that you can't say that. You can't. Yeah, you can. uh, By the way. Oh, you can't say yeah, it on your yeah, show. Of okay, can you believe it or no? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can say whatever. Oh, okay. <laughs> you got me. Yeah, but I think because most sketch comedy people had seen up to that point had been on, say, Comedy Central or Saturday Night Live, there was just something so freeing about seeing stuff like that on TV that you would get laughs just from, you know, kind of doing stuff that was pushing the boundaries a little more than traditional TV would. So I've done that style. Some of the movies that I've written have been in a very kind of like almost Zucker Brothers style, very silly and broad. And then, uh, you know, the Between Two Ferns, stuff that I've done has been in this kind of uncomfortable, awkward style. Yeah. 
And what's interesting about this show to me, the the Comedy Bang Bang TV show, is that it's a style that I haven't done a lot of, which is a – I sort of describe it as an almost friendly comedy style, which is – we intentionally cut stuff out of the writing all the time because it's too, not to say edgy, but it it's too mean. I think one can be edgy while still not being mean, and that's something that we tried to do on the show. There's one of my favorite jokes we cut out of last year, and I really wrestled with it because it made me laugh so hard. It was in a sketch about a, uh, one of those singing fish and uh, Bobby McFerrin sues it for singing his song. And we had a, a newspaper headline that was bottom-feeding novelty act sues fish. <laughs> um, and I thought it was so funny when I read it. But at the end of the day, I thought it was too mean for our show. And mm-hmm. and, and it, was too, it was too much of a swipe at Bobby McFerrin, who by all accounts is just a nice dude who's trying, you know, who happened to luck out with a song that is not that great. Mm-hmm. So I felt for our show that was too mean and it wasn't friendly enough. And, and we, we wrestle with that a little bit. But I, I, think, I think the friendly comedy, if I were to describe it, is it's a little like Parks and Recreation where – if you look at their first six episodes, it was kind of mean, uncomfortable, awkward comedy, and then they figured out that they could make everybody like each other. And now that show is really entertaining to watch and makes you feel good because it usually affirms that there are nice people in yeah, the world. Yeah. And, and I think that's what we are sort of trying to do with our show is, is with, without being becoming toothless – do nice comedy where people like each other and where Reggie and I are friends and at the end of it you feel good for having watched it. And and what's really interesting to me is most of the stuff I've done previous in my career, Mr. Show, Between Two Ferns, the podcast, has been always for people who are, say, 15 or 16 and above. And the Comedy Bang Bang TV show has fans that are two years old. Parents are constantly sending me videos of their kids watching it. And it was very surprising to me to learn that if you just add kind of a sense of like fun and and friendliness to the show, that children are really interested in watching that. So I never expected to have the kind of career where like, you know, two-year-olds would be watching anything I did. Because I've always grown up on this hard comedy, but um, it's it's really kind of fun to know that there are are young fans. You know, I'll have like eleven year olds come up to me and talk about how much they love the show. So it's really it's really cool. I think. Yeah, maybe you should have uh, sticked to musical theater. Then you, the children would have. <laughs> Kids love musical theater. Yeah, <laughs> or don't they? You'd be hard pressed to go inside any Broadway theater and find someone younger than eighty. Oh, okay. When I one of the last Broadway shows I saw was uh, Mandy Patinkin and Patty Lapone did an evening with Mandy Patinkin and Patty Lapone, and my wife and I were there in the front row, and everyone was eighty years old and sleeping oh, during it. Okay. And they were giving it all, and like Patty Lapone started just kind of looking at us and directing a lot of stuff at us because I think we were like the only alive people in the room but yeah musical theater i'm glad i got out of that yeah but isn't it quite a big step from musical theater to the kind of comedy that has become your career yeah it was 
it was really difficult for me. Um, I, I, I grew up in high school. One of my interests was musical theater. So I was in the, um, the chorus and I did musicals in high school and I went to the high school of the performing arts and I did several musicals there, Chicago and Mary Poppins and Little Shop of Horrors. And, um, but at the same time, I was very interested in comedy and at least watching comedy and sort of being in my personal life, being a smart ass, not necessarily performing comedy because I never thought that I could get into real comedy. I always thought like, oh, maybe I'll be like a funny musical theater guy. But I was always very into comedy. And um, through when I was 23 years old, I was still doing musical theater, but I kind of didn't fit in with a lot of the people professionally I, I did it professionally for a few years yeah. yeah and i did it in college and when i went to college i was kind of the odd man out because the musical the typical musical theater person loves musical theater exclusively mm-hmm. and that sort of stereotype of the person who just goes around singing songs and making references to musical and saying sing out louise and all that kind of stuff is kind of true yeah and that is the typical musical theater person. Are, are they also gay? I would say, you know what? I mean, that's it's sort of a stereotype, yeah. but I would say maybe 50-50 or even 75. I I don't know. It's, it wasn't as it, it's not like 100% of them are and if you're not gay, you're that's why you're the odd man out. I I found working at it it was sort of like 50-50 to me. Okay. Yep. But the the mindset is something that is very like, you know, they all have kind of the same jokes that they share and the same references. And I kind of stuck out because I would do this kind of comedy that was sort of, you know, I was very influenced by David Letterman. It was very sarcastic and very kind of off-putting and distancing. And I often tried to mix doing comedy with some of the stuff I was doing, and it was not well-received at all. And I, in fact, was just about kicked out of my musical theater school and was constantly being chastised by the teachers for my sense of humor. What's chastised? Lectured or okay. being told not to do mm. what I was doing. And I was constantly writing plays while I was doing it. And then I, I wrote a really silly play that actually was kind of a lot like Comedy Bang Bang in a way. And someone was like, see, that that's the best play you've ever written because it's the most like you. And as much as I love musical theater and I've I've often thought about how great it would be to do one more musical, um, Casey Wilson and I have often talked about doing a night of review together where we both sing songs. We just did a duet in December for Paul Shear's Christmas show. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we talk about it a lot, but as much as I love musical theater, I think the lifestyle got to me of of... I didn't really want to move to New York and I didn't want to do regional theater where I had to move every nine weeks every time that a show ended. And then I moved back to L.A. and just kind of started pursuing these other things that I was interested in, including writing and including comedy. Mm. Can I ask you something perhaps a little bit stupid, but uh, Aukerman? Yes. What kind of name is that? From what I know, it's a German name. Okay. So you are of German ancestry. German and I believe Polish and uh, some other stuff. Although I'm, my wife 
brought me something the other day, which is a sort of a, a DNA test packet. Okay. Which we're both taking to find out exactly, and it will tell you, you know, what percentage of everything you are. So I'm uh-huh. going to have that very soon. I wish you would ask me about that in a month, but I don't have that kind of information right now. Maybe you can email me about that. Okay, definitely. Yeah. I definitely will. We'll yeah. do. We'll do a follow up show. That's perfect. But no Jewishness at all. No, not that. Well, not that I know of. I really only kind of know about my, probably as far as my grandfather, who, as far as I know, is is not and was here in America and fought in World War II and on on this side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but uh, that that's about all I know of as far back as I know. Okay. I also read that you were born in Georgia but grew up in OC. Yeah, I was born in Georgia, but I but because my father was in the armed forces, we moved around a lot. So that's okay. that's why we were in Georgia. He was stationed there for a little bit, and I, I don't think I was there for very long. I think I was there for a few weeks, oh, okay. um, maybe six weeks or something, and then we moved to, uh, I believe, LA, and then Orange County. They were telling me the other day that. When we moved to the house in Orange County, that my dad was still working an hour away, which surprised me when I heard that because I don't remember that. When I first started kind of remembering things, we lived in Orange County and he worked in Orange County. But um, there's a there's a period where I don't really remember with military stuff. Military, yes he he was in the military until I believe 1982 or so. He was in the National Guard. And that was his main job. And then um, I believe in – well, I may be messing this up, but at some point he took a job flying helicopters. That's what he did in the military. He got in and flew helicopters in Vietnam before the draft started happening. I think he knew the draft was going to happen, and he figured out that if he could go in before it happens, he could – go to flight school, which would be a little more safe than actually being out there fighting, you know? So he he did that, and he flew helicopters in Vietnam. Then he came back here and flew helicopters for the National Guard and also did stuff like was in a couple of movies like King Kong, the uh-huh. 70s remake, and uh, some TV shows. I think something called Moonlighting, which is not the moonlighting that's famous. But... um Anytime they needed a, a helicopter in a movie, sometimes they would call the National Guard and they would film it there. So I got to see a few film sets when I was young. And then he flew helicopters for a private company. And um, then at a certain point, he decided he wanted to own his own business. So he ran a machine parts store that made machine parts for the aeronautics industry. And then that went bankrupt when I believe, I think I was in high school when it went bankrupt, and um, then he moved on and basically did what he was doing, running that business for a company where they hired him to do the exact same thing, but he was getting a salary and it wasn't his own business. Okay. Is he still doing that? No, he retired, and um, now he kind of has some jobs on the side after retiring, but um, yeah, he did he did that until he retired, which was basically working for a company that would make the overhead compartments on planes or um, the the door that is uh, separates you from the cockpit. His company would make stuff like that. Okay. And and your mother? My mother was uh, pretty much a housewife, also was a church secretary. She retired at the same time as my father did doing that. Have, pretty traditional. Are you religious at all? My parents are very religious. 
as I said, my mother was a church secretary. My father was a deacon in the church, one of the leaders. I Which grew, church is this? It was a Christian. It was called a Baptist church, but I don't think it's traditionally what people would think of as Baptist, which implies holding snakes and, you know, like the stereotypical Baptist would be that. It was more of just like born again Christian. I grew up in the church and I, I went there. I would go three times a week, mm-hmm. twice on Sundays. Sundays would be, I think, eight to one and then seven to nine or something like that. And then um, Wednesdays would be like seven to ten, I think. So I grew up in the church and I, I you know, did a lot of stuff in it and um, went to church camps in summer. And pretty much I'm not in really religious anymore. I kind of spent a lot of time there and heard a lot of stuff and you know haven't really made sense of it <laughs> okay yeah so i'm not i'm i would say i'm not very religious but i know you know a good deal about religion did you ever like pray and stuff it was crazy i got through church my whole life without praying once and they never noticed are you sure <laughs> no. no no of course okay. i prayed yeah, yeah okay i don't so. think i don't think it'd be possible to like go to church from three till you're 19 without ever having prayed okay But I'm thinking uh, in your private life. Oh, in private life? (laughs) Um, You know, in times of great trouble, one can sometimes put it out there to if there is a higher power of like, I sometimes in, in times of great trouble will say, I just want peace. Like, I don't want the situation to change. Like, you know, there are those types of people who will only pray and go, if you get me out of this, I'll do this, or they bargain or whatever. I can sometimes just want peace in a situation of like, well, if the situation doesn't change, I just want for my mental state to not go crazy. Do you believe uh, in uh, a life after life? A life after life. Is a life during you, life, is I would say. You, I definitely believe in that. Uh, life after death, in other words, oh, like a heaven you. or... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I probably don't. I'm okay. one of those guys who who doesn't know. Yeah. But I I would say I I probably don't. But life is weird too. Like the fact that we're sitting here and that we've mastered nature to such an extent that we've carved a table out of a tree and yeah. we've we've somehow made these microphones out of plastics and stuff. I mean that's that's really weird that we were able to do that. So who knows, you know, maybe there's something guiding that. I've talked about this on my show that I have some trouble with Darwin mm-hmm. uh, that that we're all like coming from I don't know what like from little f- amoebas and, yeah, exactly. yeah, and fish. Yeah, exactly. That's so hard to grasp for me. So, so oh, if we we'll do, do that fo- follow-up. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'll let you know exactly what my ancestry is, and then we'll talk about and, Darwin. Yeah, exactly. And we're so complex, and we can do such fantastic things. Mm-hmm. And I truly believe that, you know, the, the expression, necessity is the mother of invention, I think about that a lot of just like, When people need to do something, that's when they'll think, that's when they figure it out. You know, I mean, if you don't need to do anything and you're just kind of sitting around, you'll never figure anything out. But that may apply to evolution. I don't know. You know, like if, you know, we needed these thumbs. Yeah. So we grew them. Yeah. I have no idea. It's often uh, war, either war or porn. 
to make uh, stuff happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yes. Well, yeah. hey, you know, yeah. who knows? We're not going to solve it here on this podcast. Although, what if we did? That would. What be if we wonderful. figured out if there was life after death on this podcast? And if God exists. But would you say that you uh, are are you middle class? Were you middle class? I was definitely middle class growing up. I think I was lower middle class. Uh, I growing up in Orange County. For your listeners. It is kind of a rich pocket of California. It's a little bit south of Los Angeles, and um, it has a lot of industry and is is considered a very rich neighborhood. The OC is set there, and it was kind of I knowing the people who produced that show. They produced it based on this kind of stereotype of what all of OC is like, but not all of it is like that. But it's you know it's it's more well off than other places. Now, I believe that I was on the bottom of of that in the OC because I grew up kind of – this will maybe illustrate how middle class I was. I grew up very upset we didn't have a pool. I grew up very upset we didn't have a second story on our house. Mm -hmm. Like I would, I would go to all of my friends' house and they would have two stories or they would have a pool. And I was like, that's what everyone has. Why don't we have it? And, you know, my parents were very much like, well, we can't afford it, <laughs> you know. My dad was in the military, you know what I mean? So, but at the same time, I think he grew up in the years where if you came out of the military and you worked hard and you saved up a little bit of money, you were able to buy a house and you were able to make a nice middle class life for yourself and be comfortable. And, you know, and yes, maybe you wouldn't have everything that your neighbor had, but you, we had a really, really nice life. It's very hard these days for that to happen. I, you see the middle class shrinking. I see people out here who are trying to save up money for houses and friends of mine in show business who make more money than other people can barely save up enough for houses. I mean, the, the market is very weird right now. So, and the middle class is shrinking. So it's harder and harder. I, it's a little too bad that that is happening because, you know, the as they call it, the American dream used to be just, you know, get a good job, work hard. And if you do that, you'll be rewarded with a nice life. And these days it's like people have to work three jobs. If you're, if you're working at Walmart, you can't afford anything. You have to get a second job. It's just, it's very, the, the economy seems very, very messed up these days. I saw a chart recently about what percentage of the world's wealth is in the top 1%. Yeah. And it is staggering how much of the money is in the 1%. I mean, it's so much money, and the middle class is so, so, so tiny, and the lower class is just minuscule. It's just, it's it's really, I'm not saying that we should redistribute the wealth necessarily, but it's just, it's it's staggering when you see it. Why aren't you saying that? You know, I mean, uh, look, my father is very super kind of Republican or at least kind of like very, very right wing on issues. And so we have a lot of conversations about this, about, you know, the sort of what America is based on and the, you know, competition aspect of if you get rid of, you know, look, he's very much against, I think, Obamacare, even though. You know, people in his own family kind of suffer from not having health insurance. And we've talked about even he is not right wing enough to say that the healthcare system here isn't totally messed up and that there has to be a solution. He doesn't think Obamacare is the solution, but his fear is that, you know, if you 
start giving everyone health care, then people have less incentive to become doctors because the wages of becoming doctors start to get lower and lower. And so then, therefore, people won't want to strive to get better. And what we were talking about, about necessity is the mother of invention. People won't need that money and so won't try to become doctors and therefore the level of health care will slip. But at the same time, look at our education system. That has gotten lower and lower and worse and worse because we don't pay the teachers enough. So I don't know. Maybe there's a point there, but I don't know. I mean, something has to change because it is tough being poor. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up middle class, but when I, once I left home, I was on my own. And, you know, my basic years of struggling as a show business person is I was very poor. And I had to deal with all the stuff that people who are of lower income have to deal with. For instance, like, I, I feel like parking tickets are kind of a tax on the poor. Mm -hmm. The reason you get certain parking, I used to get a parking ticket for being parked in front of my house because I had an out-of-date sticker, you know, and because I couldn't, because I was not in a financial situation where I could get that sticker right away. I felt like even though I was doing no one any harm, I'm parked right in front of my apartment on a cul-de-sac in the middle of nowhere, the police would come around and they would ticket people because they were just trying to find tickets to raise money. And I kind of feel like a lot of times when you're poor, it is so hard. They, the government makes it so difficult for you to ever rise up out of that. It's like a rigged game that you have to become either like a famous athlete or a famous singer or a famous show business person to ever rise up out of that. Mm. So that's what now the poor kind of see as a solution. It's just very difficult for anyone to ever kind of get on top of it and save up that money that they need in order to rise into the middle class. Meanwhile, you have people in the right wing saying, well, you should work harder. And if you just work hard, then you'll get out of that situation. But I think that's disappearing, you know. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I also don't think that, you know, socialism is necessarily the idea either. What is the government like in Sweden? I would say that uh, compared to the U.S., we are super left-wing. Even the right mm -hmm. who are in, uh, in government right now, they will probably lose uh, the election this coming fall. And are people happy with that? No. We also got uh, last election. We had the, uh, a racist party in the uh, really yeah for the first time. Wow. They're not that big yet. Well, they're uh, yet twelve percent. Yeah, but twelve percent of the yeah. population. Yeah, out of nine hundred thousand people, nine million. Yeah, nine million. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> boy, that, yeah. I really got off on that. Yeah. So nine million people. There are there are one million people that are racist. And willing to say so. I mean, a well, lot of racist people are not willing to say so. They're not openly racist. Yeah. Well, that's tough. I mean, so that's... I, I, would, I wouldn't say that one million of the Swedish population says, hey, yeah, I'm a racist. But, uh, but if 12% yeah. of the population is... They're voting is for a... Voting for a yeah. racist party. I, yeah. mean, I mean, yeah, it's a secret ballot, right? It doesn't look too good. Yeah, that's not too good. That's why I'm coming here. Uh, yeah, but uh, you you say that the middle class is uh, shrinking. Uh, my lack of uh, American knowledge on the American society makes me want to ask why. I think that there are a lot of laws that have been enacted over the past 50, 60 years that basically rig the game for rich people. 
And it's so difficult to try to figure out your way through things. You know, I'm I'm very lucky. I'm a I'm a person in show business who who I'm relatively good with numbers, but I but if I had to do what my father had to do, which is figure out the family's finances and figure out read the fine print on credit card bills and you know, know how to get a good credit score and like all these things that people, it's very difficult to do now because there, there's so much fine print. If you ever sign any kind of contract, does anyone ever read the things that you, you know, you just click agree. Yeah. But there are so many laws that have been passed now where it's just the rich people, they know how to game the system now. And when you have a certain level of wealth, it's just easy to get even more rich, but it's very, very difficult for anyone who works hard and ha- doesn't have a lot of money to ever kind of rise above, you know, and, and it's it's really too bad. The excitement when Obama got uh, elected, wasn't that part of it that people thought that now it's actually like we're shifting yeah. focus? And, and yeah. I, I think we, we probably did to an extent. I don't know. I mean, you know, there there are a lot of people who say, and I, I certainly, by the way, I certainly don't know a ton about politics, yeah. but there are people who I think would say, well, Obama's done nothing. But I mean, having lived through the eight years of George W. Bush, I mean, you know, just some of the policies, the financial policies. I mean, the whole uh, you know reason our our finan- we're in this financial ruin in the country is because of the bank policies and the laws that were passed. And yeah, you know, and that's sort of what I mean is is it just it just seems unfathomable now to try to figure out how to raise your level. Yeah. It just, there's there's too many laws. There's too many blockades in your way that people have set up, and. The rich people, all of the laws are sort of aimed at protecting them. And it used to be, you know, back in the 50s, there was this promise of if you got out of World War II, you know, and you you came back home, that if you put your head down and you worked, that the system helped you. And now it seems like the system is kind of, you know, preventing you from doing anything. And and I think there was kind of a, a hope that Obama would sort of come in and change that. But as we've seen there are too many laws for him now you know like there's there's no way that anyone in government can get anything done anymore and it's it's also i i think that so many people in the country have been really tricked through social issues that the republican party has adopted people are republicans because of social issues they don't even look at the financial picture mm. So people are Republicans because Republicans have become the party of the morally right, supposedly, i.e. gay people shouldn't be married, abortion should be illegal, all of these kind of social issues that don't have anything to do with finance, that don't have anything to do with the laws that now these poor people are tricked into voting for Republicans because they are nice church-going people who agree with these issues. Okay. And they're tricked into voting for the right-wing party because they feel that left-wing people and liberals are morally bankrupt. And so they're voting against themselves on these financial issues because the moral issues are more important to them, which is is really too bad. You kind of wish that there would be a middle party 
that was like, hey, we we believe in all these moral issues that you believe in, but we also believe in helping people to get out of their financial system. So yeah. anyway. That was another question, and you partly replied it now, but your father, you say, is a Republican. Mm-hmm. For a Swedish person, as myself, it's really hard to understand how people can be Republicans at all. But could you yeah. explain that to me like you would for a well, 12-year-old? <laughs> how old are you? 12 years old? No, actually I'm I'm pushing 40. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I was going to say you <laughs> but my intellect is uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. I think that there's a certain philosophy in in total like hardline financial republicans that, you know, can make sense. There's not a lot of evidence that it that it makes sense the trickle down theory. There's so much evidence that it doesn't make sense now, but you know, there's there's a certain amount of of if you listen to enough talk radio and you listen to enough Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and people like that, they sort of hammer these financial policies home to you that can kind of make sense. But I like I was saying, I think people get tricked into it because of Morally, they just agree with the moral stance of the right wing more, and it's like a gateway almost to them where it's like, oh, well, I believe in these sort of, you know, traditionally right wing Christian values, and so that is the party that I'll go to, and so I'll start to listen about the financial policies, and then they just, it's almost like a cult in a way. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say that. And, you know, I mean, there are a lot of great people who are right wing, and my father's a great guy. And I understand, I mean, we have discussions and I understand his point, but you'll start to get into things like he really believes in, you know, the free market and getting government out of people's homes. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you start talking about legalizing drugs, no, no way. Absolutely not. I'm like, well, aren't you the guy that says we should get government out of people's homes? Why are we preventing people from smoking marijuana or, or even doing heroin? And as far as I'm concerned, make heroin legal. I don't care. And I say, you know, just make it legal and tax it. And then he'll go, well, we shouldn't tax it. That's, you know, that's, again, getting into people's homes. So he'll think about, okay, maybe we should legalize marijuana. But they're, they're, it's it's almost like they've been tricked in a way mm-hmm. of like these moral, moral issues like not legalizing drugs, which are just insanity to me, especially marijuana. But I mean, for me, uh, I don't know. I don't care about really what people do for anything. Why do you think that uh, like Coke or uh, heroin should be legal then? I I just think the amount of money that goes into preventing it from coming into this country uh, does more harm than good. The war on drugs hasn't really worked. Okay. So if people want to do heroin, let's really educate people as to why they shouldn't. But people are going to do what they're going to do. I have never known anyone to not do heroin because it was illegal. I've known people not to do heroin because it sucks. <laughs> you yes, know? Yeah. So anyone I know who's done heroin and has become an addict to heroin has not become an addict because it was legal. They become an addict because heroin's around and they tried it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like... A lot of people say, well, what are kids going to do? You know, I mean, look at smoking. I mean, smoking is terrible and it's available to kids. And we put as many barriers as we can in between children and smoking so they don't become addicted at a young age. But at the same time, if we made it illegal, 
kids would still smoke. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And the the making it illegal, there's so many people who are in jail because of marijuana and because of other drugs like heroin and cocaine. It's such a financial burden. I mean, the prison system is is one of the number one industries in the United States. And that's horrible that mm. that you can make so much money running a prison, <laughs> you yeah. know, and people are locked up and it ruins their lives. I don't know. I'm just not a big fan. I would say make, you know, things legal. And this is look, this is coming from a position of ignorance this, that is probably enraging some yeah, of your yeah, listeners. It's uh, interesting. <laughs> but I've never known a drug addict who who wouldn't have done it otherwise. Mm. You know, I definitely feel like no one should do it. You know, I'm I'm a person who really doesn't do a lot of drugs, but at the same time, drugs are around, you know, like when people start busting people at fish shows, it's like, you know, what? why is there really stuff going on at these fish shows that is a detriment to our society that people are like, we need to to get the law involved? No, people are just having a good time. And even if people are overdosing yeah. and killing themselves. Well, you know, so what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, people are going to do that. But then again, you have the the laws like seatbelt laws, laws that are put into place in order to protect society. Some people would say, hey, man, I don't want to wear a helmet on my motorcycle. That should be my choice. Sometimes it's not about the person's choice. It's about the financial burden it puts on other people. If you are riding a motorcycle and you split your head open, yes, you're dead and who cares? But it's more about the person who you ran into. Like, why does that person have to deal with the fact that you split your head open and on are his dead? Car, right? On or his car, you know? Or, or, or the financial part of the healthcare system of like, why... Why should we be paying for you to be in that coma for the rest of your life? You know, so there are there are laws that are put into place in order to protect the society, which I sometimes agree with, too. So I don't know. It's a, it's very complicated. And I'm sure if you were to present me with any fact saying drugs should not be legal, then I'd probably agree with you as well. But okay. that's where I stand right now. Yeah. yeah. Are you uh, disappointed with uh, President Obama? I think he came into... A really bad situation. I mean, I was on my honeymoon. It would have been September of 2008, right, when he was running for office and the whole financial system collapsed. And people were saying, this is going to be 10 years before we get out of this, you know, which is longer than his two terms. And people all knew that, supposedly, that whoever got this job was going to have a terrible time of it. And people seem to have forgotten that a little bit. Like, you know, within two years of him taking office, it was like, come on, motherfucker, why aren't you getting me a job? And it's like, no, we all knew that President George W. Bush and even probably policies enacted by Clinton put these policies into action that have ruined our financial picture for a decade. And But people, you know, don't get changed fast enough, so they they get really mad. I admire him for trying to change the health insurance system. I think that is so huge. And I think I actually met with one of his top aides about Obamacare because um, really weirdly, uh, she met with a lot of people at Funny or Die and they were trying to see if we could do some stuff with her. And as it was explained to me, it is really great. And I wish the website being slow wasn't, you know, bumming people out so much about it. But... 
I admire him for for taking a stab at huge things like that, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and running the country is very difficult, and he killed Osama bin Laden, and that's cool. It's not like he had a, an easy ride. I feel like if he had had the majority in the Senate and the House, things would have been way easier for him, but um, he didn't. So he had a lot of impediments in his way, but you know, it's just kind of a bummer that more didn't happen. But at the same time, we knew it wasn't going to, so I don't know. Let's say that you were to, uh, by magic, become the U.S. president. Oh, boy. It would have to be magic. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so, uh, given your... Uh, <laughs> given uh, the amount of times I'd, I've said the C word on my podcast. And also your your uh, your thoughts on, on drugs being oh, yeah. legal, etc. Well, you know, but, even Obama came out the other day and said marijuana should be legal, yeah. which is, you know, I I remember talking about this back in the 90s with people about when do you think gay marriage will be legal and when will drugs be legal yeah and a lot of my friends this is during mr show i think of the late 90s were saying not in my lifetime it looked like it would never happen you know and i i remember i remember saying to one of my friends we who's a big football fan i was saying when will an athlete come out of the closet and he said never Mm. absolutely it will never happen and now you see it happening, and it's really great. So you know, and uh, has that happened in football? And I actually don't know if it's happened in football. I know that there are a lot of what's really great is is there are a lot of football players who uh, have come out in support of gay marriage, okay. um, yeah. which is great. I don't know that a football player has, but you know, a basketball player has, and um, I think that. It's rapidly accelerating the change that's happening in terms of these kind of social issues, which is great. And the fact that Obama can come out and go, yeah, marijuana is not not as bad as alcohol. That would have killed his career six years ago or something like that. So it's it's really great that stuff like that is changing. But anyway. Yeah, my yes. question was, what would your top priorities be? I think for me, it would be just trying to make things better on the lower class on people who don't have a lot of money. I mean, just the whole the whole system just seems really broken, you know. So I, I think I would try. I, I education would be a big part of it. I think that you know it's just sad to see what's happened to public schools. They're really bad now, and teachers are not paid enough. Why would anyone become a teacher? Mm. I don't know. We have the same problem in Sweden. Yeah. Although I learned uh, this the other day that. Maybe uh, you can help me to mm-hmm. grasp this, but that the public schools are financed by tax on houses. Mm, yeah, I, I was thinking about this the other day. I'm not an expert in this field, but I'm almost an expert, so I'll take a stab <laughs> at it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think you know the reason why public schools are so bad in certain neighborhoods is because it's not like all of the tax dollars in California are all divided equally between all public schools. It's the taxes in whatever the city is that exactly. the, that the yeah. state that the the school is in pay for that public school. So if you're in a really poor neighborhood, there aren't going to be a lot of taxes raised, which means the school isn't going to get a lot of money, which means the education at that school will be terrible, which means that neighborhood will never have people living in it that will ever get a good education and get more money, which means it just sinks further and further down into yeah. being terrible. Mm. There are 
certain charter schools and stuff like that that are popping up that are trying to change that. But it's just it's you know, I grew up in Orange County and I've seen the rich, super rich schools and it's you know a shame that and even looking for i've been looking for a house around here lately and it's very bizarre the little pockets and neighborhoods that have good schools and that don't have good schools it's you know it's it's crazy you you go over the line just a little bit and there will be a terrible public school and then there's one that's one of the best you know just in a neighborhood right next to each other so but you don't have children no i don't no i'm looking to hang out at public schools (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm looking for really smart boys to get into my van. Yeah. Okay. So that would be a priority then to change the government, uh, the uh, education, education system. Education, I think, kind of changing. Look, I would tax people probably more. I'm a guy who gets taxed a lot, and you know it sucks, but. <laughs> We got to pay taxes. Yeah. You know, I'm also a guy who gets mad when I'm driving over a bumpy road, <laughs> you know, so it's like you can't have it both ways. I really feel bad for, for children who are suffering through a shitty educational system. Mm. You know, I think that would be a priority for me. Are you making a lot of money? Wow. I do okay, not in show business standards, but um, I do all right. Yeah. But again, I'm taxed at, I think I keep 30% of my money. Not through taxes, but through, you know, agents, managers, taxes. Okay. So I only keep 30% of what I make. Yeah. But uh, still, you are doing okay. Lately, especially having the TV show, it's been been better than ever. But I've – most of my career, I was struggling. I mean, even after Mr. Show and writing movies, I was writing movies and I still was having my – My place just about got foreclosed on. I had my car repossessed twice. Yeah, I've I've been certainly struggling through trying to make ends meet for most of my life, yeah. This Airwolf, I mean, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, it's been great. I mean, it's it's, uh, fine. I mean, we've been going now for almost four years, and I believe we just started making more than breaking even over the last year, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but but the good part was we broke even for the first three years, which is hard to do yeah. in a small business. But I've looked around. I mean, there's a lot of people here. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, the and and podcasting has become a more acceptable form of entertainment for people that you know. I think advertisers are finally getting on board with in a way that when we first started, it was. We had a lot of meetings with some of the bigger um, advertisers, and we were just kind of laughed out of the room. Like they're like, "What is a podcast? What are you talking about?" And now people are kind of coming around to it, so it's really great. How do you get paid uh, from uh, by check? Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, those sent a check to my business yeah. manager. But is it a? Do you have a like kickback system or? I mean, if you have legal Zoom, uh, for uh-huh. instance, do you get a kickback from traffic to that site? It's tra- it's tra- it's a pretty traditional model when you look at it in terms of advertising. Um, it's much like radio, where an advertiser will pay for a spot on a show based on the ratings that they think you'll get and the number of people that will listen to it, and they pay for that spot, and then the in radio. I think you know what would maybe be different about it in radio is the ra- the the radio station would pay a salary to the the DJ. 
I think we have a lot of different ways we do it at Earwolf, where sometimes you're doing a, a split, you know, uh, or sometimes we pay people a salary to do the shows. So it's, it kind of varies. I guess also, uh, since it's a, like you have your own network that you can, like, if someone wants to uh, advertise with you, you can put them on more than one show. Yeah, that that's kind of the reason we started doing it is... If imagine you were Bud Light, for instance, and you were you wanted to start advertising on podcasts. Yeah, I'll try. Imagine you are a bottle of Bud Light. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be drank. No. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> because you would die. Yeah. But you do want to advertise for people to drink you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but say you're someone at Bud Light and you're in yeah. the advertising department and you want it and you were like, oh, WTF, Comedy Bang Bang are really big and Nerdist is really big. I want to start advertising on podcasts. You would then have to go to Mark Marin personally, I think. You'd have to go to Nerdist and you'd have to go to Comedy Bang Bang. And if you were interested in five other shows, you'd have to go to them personally and say, hey, can we buy an ad? It seems daunting and seems like a waste of time. Whereas if you band together with a lot of different people, and I think we have 20 shows or something like that right 21. now. 21. 21. Then you can say to an advertiser, hi, we have 21 of these shows. Which ones do you want? Yeah. And it's way easier for them mm -hmm. as well. And then also part of the business is we now are selling ads for people who are not even in Earwolf. So WTF, for instance. Uh -huh. um, so that is a, that's a, an interesting part of the business, too, where... I think that is a reason for people to join forces and to share resources. I mean, the nice studio that we're in right now, if it were just for Comedy Bang Bang, I probably could have afforded to build this room maybe at a certain point after a few years, especially if I borrowed money for myself against one of the other projects I'm doing. Mm. But what's great about it is we have 21 shows coming in, and so we can afford these nice rooms because, because we all share it. And shows that are bigger, like mine, sort of pay for the ones that are passion projects of ours that that don't get a lot of advertising that we just think are great shows. Yeah. How much work do you put into the Comedy Bang Bang podcast? I've been doing it more over the past couple of years. I've started doing more shows, so I think I did. I think I did close to a hundred shows last year. So if you look at it in terms of like just at an average of an hour and a half, that is 150 hours, which comes out to be six days. So I work six days. Yeah. On it. <laughs> no, I put a lot of work into it. It's it's um, as if you mean preparation for mm, it. Of course. I probably don't do a lot of that anymore. I think I used to prepare a little more than I do now nowadays i'm a little more comfortable in just whatever happens happens mm. for instance i'm taping two shows this afternoon and i don't really know what's going to happen on either of them okay you have nothing nothing okay so when <laughs> occasionally i will think of a funny story i think the one that came out this week something happened to me when i parked outside and i brought it up <laughs> but you know which guests you're going to have Sometimes, you know, I'll I'll be surprised by it. Uh no, yeah, I know what guess that that's the most work honestly. Um having uh run the comedy show at the UCB Theater for 10 years yeah. and doing these podcasts, that is the 
the biggest time suck out of all of it is booking. Do you have help with that in the next room? They've started doing that a little bit, but not that much. It's pretty much just me reaching out to people. Some people I meet tend to work with like five-year plans or mm. stuff like that. Do you have a plan? I didn't. And what's what's really interesting is if you would have asked me what my plan was five years ago, it would have been wildly different because five years ago... Well, let's say five and a half, because I think I started doing the podcast five and a half years ago. My five-year plan would have probably have been continued developing sitcoms. At the time, I think I had done shows for NBC for the for the past four years, maybe Fox. Continued trying to write sitcoms and try to get one on the air that I was the creator of. Mm -hmm. And continue writing maybe a movie or two movies a year and try to get one of those made. That would have been my five-year plan, just like try to get into a having a show on the air and getting one movie made. And then, bizarrely, this podcast that I was just doing for fun opened up a lot of avenues of opportunity for me, and IFC took a chance on me as a performer. So the past five years have been very different than what I thought would happen. I, I was a performer when I first started doing comedy in addition to being a writer. And then w when I got on to Mr. Show, the performance aspect was sort of disencouraged. They encouraged me not to perform all that much. And so I really kind of said, oh, okay, well, I'm, maybe I'm just a writer. I'm I'm not one of those guys who, who performs. But then I started doing this podcast for fun because I, I really missed performing but if you had asked me five and a half years ago, will you be the star of a TV show? I would have said absolutely not. There's no way at my age and that this can happen anymore. So, yeah, my five-year plan would have been blown up. I would have had no idea. As to now, then, what's your plan now? Now, you'd be asking me at a weird time because I'm in the. I feel like I'm in the middle of the run of the TV show. We're just about to shoot the third season, which could be the middle we could do six seasons maybe it could be close to the end we don't know i think we'll do a fourth maybe that'll be it mm -hmm. i don't know so at this point i really don't know what the five-year plan is you know when i first started i mentioned the the live comedy show that i did at the ucb for 10 years yeah i remember after a year and a half of that i was there you were there? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I remember after a year and a half, someone asked me, how long are you going to do this? And I was like, eh, six more months? Mm. And then we had the two-year anniversary, and I was like, I might do it another year. And then at the fourth anniversary, people very nicely started shouting, four more years, four more years. And I remember thinking, God, never in a million years will I, was just, will I still be doing this for eight years. Around seven years I started thinking it would be nice to get to 10 I don't think I'll be able to do it but mm -hmm. it would be nice to get to 10 I barely made it to 10 but I made it to 10 I did 10 and change and that's how I sort of feel about the TV show is like right now I'm in the I'm I'm at the the period you're talking to me when we just finished a, a huge long writing period and that's always the toughest part of the show um, is trying to come up with all the ideas for it I feel kind of like mentally exhausted in in terms of that so if you were to ask me hey how much longer can you do the show i would say another year maybe you know but who knows maybe it goes 10 years i, don't, I have no idea so i don't i don't have any kind of plan right now 
as far as the TV show, as far as the podcast, that's the other thing is like, I've now done it for almost six years. That's crazy to me because I thought I would do it for one. So who knows? Who know, you know, I hate to give stuff up. Yeah, <laughs> I really do. If I enjoy doing something and I love doing the podcast, I love doing the TV show. I'm the type of person who, if someone says, do you want to do it more? Do you want to do it some more? I say, yes, yes, I will do it some more. And as long as IFC keeps offering me the show, I feel like I should because it's so hard to get a show on the air. And I spent the entire time from Mr. Show until Comedy Bang Bang trying to get another show on the air. And that is 12 years that it's so hard to get a show on the air that if they say, keep doing your show, it's very difficult to turn that down because then mentally I go back into and do what? Like another 12 years of trying to get a different show on the air? Mm. So I don't know. I don't know what the five-year plan would be. You have two successful creative outlets, but do you get your whole uh, range, of pal your palette uh, out there? I would say the thing that I don't get to do is really I don't often get to be the super funny one because I have to be the host in both of those things in the yeah. podcast and on the TV show. I tend to have to play the straight man in a lot of which you are fantastic at. Oh, thank you. But but I enjoy doing something like a Doug Benson's I Love Movies because I get to go on, be really super sarcastic, choose my moments, not have to be talking all the time. And just like come in like a sniper or an assassin and just like, boom, make jokes and and not have to talk all the time. So I miss doing stuff like that a little bit. And so, you know, and I used to do sketches and I used to do characters and stuff like that. I miss doing that kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, it's great to have a show on the air. <laughs> so I'm I'm and. I go into the writing without a lot of ego in that respect. You know, I thought about it this year of like, do I need to start writing more funny things for me to do? Like I go in in a very democratic process and and just go, what's best for the idea? Yeah. And I tend to give a lot of funny stuff to a lot of other people. And this year I was kind of like, do I need to start kind of making sure that we write a ton of funny stuff but the, look I'm in the show enough <laughs> you know what I mean like it's it's working I don't need to like all of a sudden start making it be like making me do the crawl show or anything you know what I mean like it's doing well I I tend to get to do a lot of funny things on it and it's a really good mixture do you feel that you would like to uh, do more serious stuff yeah, you know, maybe I, you know, I look at like Tim Heidecker who got to do a movie like the comedy and I go, oh, wow, that's really cool. I'd love to do something like that. I, it is a little weird to me that I'm not one of maybe the unfortunate parts of me being the straight man on in a lot of these projects is that I don't tend to get a lot of calls to be in other shows. Usually if someone had a kind of critically lauded comedy show on TV, they would get cast in other things, you know? Mm. I don't tend to get a lot of those calls, which is kind of, I, I view it as a little more of like, oh, am I just viewed as the host of something that where comedy is happening around? Which, you know, can be the criticism of me as a performer uh, that a lot of people would say. You know, and I, I come from a sketch background where I was doing a lot of character work, and so you know, I, I, I would like to be cast in stuff, but I tend to not be called for that kind of stuff. But uh, when it comes to, to writing uh, movies, have you written uh, stuff that's not I've comedies? Written, 
Oh, not comedies? I wrote a lot of plays that were dramatic. I have not really written a totally serious drama. But I'd love to write an action movie, honestly. I. Yeah. What keeps you? Time. Uh. Time. The last movie I wrote, I was in a year-long writing panel for Imagine Films. Jason Manzukas and I were both in that, and um, where we, for a year, met with about 10 people, 10 other writers, and we helped each other with each other's scripts. It was an interesting idea Ron Howard had about why why aren't movies written more like TV shows where there's a group of people helping each other. So I did that for a year, and I wrote a really interesting script, I think. And it looked, it had a director attached, and it looked like it was kind of moving forward, and then um, the director jumped ship and did something else. So... I actually think when you were on Martin's show that you were at that, that maybe stage. it was at the stage yeah. where the director was doing it. Yeah. Yeah, it looked it looked really good. We had a special effects company, we had a director and then all, one day I got a call right as I was going to buy a, new a car. meeting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was buying the Ferrari that that the director had pulled out. Yeah. And then my time on the show, they, they asked me, hey, do you want to stick around on the movie and try to get it going again? And I just, the time on the TV show, I was like, I maybe can reapproach this in six months, but it, it's unfortunate I would love to write another movie. But I mean, I, I can't believe that I co-wrote another TV show while, I, you know, this James Adomian thing that we're doing, hopefully, I can't believe that. I was able to find the time to write that. So it's just, it's all about time, you know. So, so he's doing a uh, own TV show? Yes, we have we have a show at IFC, okay. which um, we've co-written all right. um, for him to star in. And um, it's really funny. It looks really good. I've, I'm hoping we'll learn about if we're making a pilot in the next, uh, you know, week or two weeks or so. We'll do that in the... Uh, in the follow-up. Yeah. yeah, we'll talk about my ethnicity... We'll talk about, uh, what was it you were going to find out about? Something about politics, wasn't it? Yeah, something about Sweden, right? Something about Sweden. Yeah. How many, you're going to go around counting the racists? <laughs> yeah. I have to say also that um, CBB, I have to thank you for that. Oh, thank you for although, listening. Although uh, that's not what I'm doing at all. Mm -hmm. I'm more of a WTF podcaster, perhaps. But mm -hmm. my interview style, as you have perhaps noticed, isn't really. I was marks. wondering when we're going to start doing the the bits and the character. Yeah, no, no, it's really. Uh, Is this a character you're doing right now? No. <laughs> I sh maybe I should. Would you like to recommend something? I love. Uh, let's let's see, Nathan for you. Uh, show on Comedy Central here in the States. That is a great TV show. It'll be coming back this year at some point. The first season was hilarious. Um, I really like that. I think a um, couple records I like. I like the Savages record. That's good. Churches, I like that. As far as podcasts, Never Not Funny is great, and I'm really happy that's coming over to Earwolf. I'm yeah. very excited about that. Um, Congratulations. That's, that's been my favorite show for a long time, and very happy to be working with Jimmy again. Yeah. And uh, books. Just read the corrections again. That was great. Liked it the second time a lot. Okay. I'd love to get a book recommendation, but no one seems to ever give me recommendations. But uh, yeah, that's all I got. That's uh, wonderful. Do you have an uh, Do you have an opinion on girls? Oh, the TV show or no, just women sex, in general? The sex. The sex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, uh, the TV show. I have watched it. I like it. I can't remember it all that well, but the the one that kind of dealt with her OC, OCD was very interesting. Mm. 
it's good. I mean, it's interesting. It's a, I like I like it when seems people like you're holding back. No, I like when people try to make something interesting and that can't be kind of a cookie cutter. I don't I don't know that it's you know when they call it a comedy. I don't think it's a comedy really. I think it's just more of an interesting show. There are all these really interesting shows that lie between comedy and drama to me. That mm-hmm. Louis, Louis, although Louis is a comedy mm-hmm. for my money. But say like a Nurse Jackie or. But uh, on the other hand, Louis can make like one episode. Sure. Where you don't laugh at all. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But that said, I think it hits for comedy more. Okay. More, yeah. more than more than say Girls would. I think yeah. Girls is is aiming to be an entertaining, interesting, emotionally affecting show that is occasionally funny, but I don't I wouldn't say that it's like, you know, I wouldn't put it up against parks and recreation or a community in oh, terms of, of laughs, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. that I think people get a little rubbed the wrong way when it's like up for awards against true comedies, you know? I wish there were a, I wish there was another category in awards ceremonies for miscellaneous yeah miscellaneous yeah. things that are not dramas and not comedies because you like that's a thing that that bugs comedians is when someone like Edie Falco will come in and be competing in the same category for Nurse Jackie as someone who is a true comedian in Amy Poehler or yeah. someone you know and it's like uh, when you hear hey I'm nominated for comedy you feel like well I'm funnier I mean, it's like, look at the Golden Globes this year. Leonardo DiCaprio won for comedy in Wolf of Wall Street. He's funny in it. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I think he's hilarious in it. But he should be in the drama category because dramas can be funny. Mm. And American Hustle is viewed as a comedy. Uh, like, wh- uh, really? I don't know. Yeah. Haven't seen it. Sorry. But I'll uh, go see it. You'll okay. go see it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Great. Maybe. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> hey, it's a deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I do nothing in this deal. Actually, but <laughs> uh, well, I just kind of sit there and listen yeah, to if, you. But if you do the uh, the uh, DNA thing, uh, uh-huh. I'll, yeah. We'll follow it up. DNA, yeah. American Hustle. Et cetera. I count the racists. All right. I would like to know also who you think think I should interview next or interview in my show Vervet mm-hmm. International? Well, I think um, Sam over here, the engineer, yeah. <laughs> just started with the company. He's got a lot of shit going on. I don't know anything about him, so I'd love to hear about him Yeah, uh, without having to talk to him. He knows stuff about mics. <laughs> he does. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Larry David? You should get him, definitely. You should do... Uh, You should get Tina Fey. You should get uh, Amy Poehler, definitely. They're the funniest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. One that's, of them. I, lo- I love I love, yeah. ta- I love. talking to Amy. She's, like, so great to talk to. Okay, if you set that up, I promise to... Hmm, yeah. All of a sudden, I have more work to do. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much, Christopher. It's very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well, Scott. The extremely sympathetic Scott Aukerman and his podcast is ongoing. They're somewhere in their 320s episode-wise. And his uh, TV show runs as of right now on IFC and the season runs until December. So go check that out if you have the possibility. And go see Between Two Ferns on uh, funnyordie.com. You can also follow Scott on Twitter. That's Scott Aukerman in one word. And while 
at it. Why don't you follow VarvetPod as well? That's VarvetPod in one word, both on Twitter and Instagram. The people doing this show are myself, Christopher Triumph, my editor, Christina jolling who had a son like three days ago. Congratulations from all of us. Congratulations to Christina and Peter for that. Thank you, Lovisa Olsson, for editing this fantastic podcast. And thank you to Maria Marcus for producing the theme song. Talk to you in a week. By then, I will be in Los Angeles. Bye bye. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.